mashed potatoes, right? Delicious. Um, in, in our house, I'm kind of, I'm the king of leftovers, uh, and so I, I'm very particular, though some of you guys may be able to identify with this. Um, I like to stretch the, the leftovers to get maximum value, so I, I start with the oldest leftovers and work my way to the newest. So we had um, my in-laws in with us all week from Virginia. Uh, we, we rarely get to spend big holidays together, so they were in with us um, to celebrate Thanksgiving. So we've been cooking and eating together all week long. So even still today, I'm still working on like two Tuesday, Wednesday, thir- you know, Thursday breakfast leftovers. So I'm hoping that my wife and um, child get to leave me a little bit of Thanksgiving leftovers for maybe like Tuesday, Wednesday. I'll probably get there and finish, finish the other ones. Um, but I love today for a lot of reasons. But there's, there's one main reason. Because Thursday was kind of the marker for this, this change of, of pace in our life. Right? Thursday is Thanksgiving. Uh, and we love it, and it's a day to be grateful, but at the same time, it's filled with craziness, running around, getting the food ready, welcoming family members that you may or may not like so much, right? Uh, and then Thursday is followed by Black Friday, which most recently has kind of become more of, of Black Wednesday through Friday, right? You know, they just kind of seem to be inching forward in the week every year. Um, and then following Black Friday is Small Business Saturday, um, founded by American Express, now, I don't know about you guys, but any day dedicated to shopping founded by a credit card company is going to raise some flags in my book, so that one always freaks me out a little bit. And then tomorrow we have Cyber Monday, um, the day where all the websites kind of do their big sales, which I feel like is a little bit unfair, because it's not like any of them held out on Black Friday, right? They were all doing it then. They're just kind of jumping on the bandwagon. So I love today because it kind of represents a little, a little window of sanity, a little window of peace a little window, and a break in this season of chaos and of craziness, right? And so I love the ability to just kind of gather here as a community for an hour and just say, there's something bigger than all this that's going on, right? And so over the course of the next few weeks, we as, as Mariners are going to be kind of doing that consistently over the, over the weeks um, by starting a new series called Christmas Is. And so each week, we're going to be kind of filling in that blank. Christmas is what, right? And so we've adopted a banner verse for the series um, found in Romans 15, 13. And it is in your outline that came with your bulletin. But that verse says this. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of great words in there. And, and, And this week, we're going to be kind of pulling the word out peace. The idea of peace. Christmas is peace. Maybe, right? Maybe not. But so before we get up to full speed, let's um, bow your heads with me and just, we're going to take a minute to pray and just center ourselves on God and then we'll, we'll get going full speed here. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for a break in the craziness that, um, looms ahead of us, God, the craziness that is behind us. We've made it through the first leg of this gauntlet, God, but we know we still have many weeks ahead. And so, Lord, we set aside this time as just sacred time to rest in you. God, to acknowledge that the world around us um, might be losing its head over the few weeks, but you are inviting us into something different, something bigger. And so, God, as is tradition for our community, Um, But as is especially important in these few weeks, God, we give you a minute of silence, a minute of rest to just reflect on you.
God, thank you again for who you are and what you are inviting us into. God, speak through me this morning and uh, let us receive some of your peace, some of your rest here today. We love you so much. Amen. Okay, so keep your eyes closed for a little bit, kind of, if you want to play along. Just a little, little thought experiment, okay? Eyes closed. Go back a few weeks in your, in your mind as you're out and about doing things. Um, stores are starting to decorate for Christmas. Things are starting to go on sale for Christmas decorations, right? Lights and trees and Santa outfits. Um, the radio starts playing all of your favorite holiday jams. The weather has dropped to a brisk 85, and it's still just mid-October, right? Um, what comes to your mind? No, but seriously, what, I mean, when you think of Christmas, this is going to be an interactive thing, so you can open your eyes, and I want to hear some, when you think of Christmas, when you think of Christmas season, what, what comes to your mind? What kind of words, thoughts, emotions come to your mind? Family. Joy. Peppermint hot chocolate. Amen. Thank you, Starbucks. What was it? Spending lots of money. Baking. Excellent. Great. What was it? Candy canes. Amen. So we can tell kind of from some of these answers, some of you guys are a little bit more of professional churchgoers than others, right? You guys know the good church answers. Jesus, joy, nativity scenes, peace and glory, right? You guys know all the words. But, but for those of us who are either a little bit more honest with ourselves or are maybe a little less jaded by years of church answers, um, we've got a little video that maybe more perfectly um, depicts how we feel when we think of the holiday season. So check this out real quick. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle-belling And everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year It's the <laughs> ah, tis the season, am I right? I mean, come on, nothing says Christmas like that. Um, but, but just like the quote, for those of you guys who were here last week, just like the quote Jeff read, it's only in America that we will trample one another, literally trample one another, um, for sales exactly one day after a day dedicated to being thankful for the things that we already have, right? And, and yet, this picture, although maybe not literally, this picture kind of more clearly depicts our emotional sentiment when we think about Christmas and when we think about the holiday season, right? I know for me, as I, I head into the season this year, I kind of, I'm heading into it with a bit of ambivalence, right? I, um, on, in one hand, great joy and celebration, and on another hand, um, tension and, and anxiety in, in, in a little bit, um, right? On, on one hand, uh, my daughter Harper, she's one and a half years old, and so this will be the first Christmas where she's not just like this, you know, like she's actually able to enjoy it a little bit. Um, like I said, we had my in-laws in town, and so like we, we don't get to celebrate things together very often. So we did Thanksgiving on Thursday, and we did Christmas on Friday. And in my family, we have, we have this tradition where um, the youngest kid typically gets to be the elf. And some of you guys may do this, but the elf, their job is to pull the, the gifts from the tree, from under the tree, and pass them out to the appropriate person, right? Um, 
And a lot of responsibility comes with being the elf. You have to make sure you don't give out presents too fast because people want to watch and make, watch each person open, right? You want to make sure that you spread them out evenly if you hoard all your presents for yourself first. You're a mean elf, right? Uh, but so, so Harper's the youngest. She gets to be the elf. And it was just incredible to watch her pick up a present and we'd tell her, that one's for grandpa. And she'd kind of scan the room, grandpa, grandpa. She'd kind of start, no, that's grandma, you know, and re-correct her. And, oh, grandpa, and she'd get it, and she'd move over, and she'd hand him, hand him the gift, and she'd be all excitedly helping him open it, and, and he'd open it, and it doesn't matter what it was, as each person opened their gift, you know, grandpa, have Merry Christmas, here's your orthopedic socks. She takes it, and she's like, these are mine, right? You know, no, no, those are for grandpa, those are for grandpa. But it's just, it's so, so awesome to see we've been taking her on all of our Christmas traditions. I don't know if any of you guys have ever gone to see the Orange County Christmas Light Show in Nellie Gale, the house. They do, like, the incredible, like, music show, lights, and decorate. You get to tour their house, and they've got, uh, they've got apple cider and homemade donuts available for you. And, I mean, they just open their house all week long. They actually are members here at the church, uh, and it's incredible. I definitely encourage you guys to go see, but we love doing that. We've taken her to see the snow at Disneyland. Um, we love uh, to take her to see all the winners of, of Ladera Ranch and Mission Viejo, of, of, you know, the decorations, and it's just, it's beautiful to see the magic of Christmas through the eyes of a one-and-a-half-year-old. I mean, it totally changes the thing, and for those of you guys who are parents or have been parents, you guys, you guys get that. So on one hand, we have that celebration and that joy, and then on the other hand, um, those of you guys who know my story, you know that um, we're in the midst of this journey where my mom is, is fighting brain cancer. And our, our current chapter in this story is one where we're debating um, taking her off of her current uh, clinical trial medication. And the reason for that is, is this medication comes with a lot of side effects that are taking a significant toll on her quality of life. Because the way this medicine works is it deprives the target area of your body of oxygen, its ability to absorb and use oxygen. Well, for her, the treatment they've prescribed is they're shooting it right into her bloodstream, so her entire body is being deprived of oxygen. This has a lot of effects. It, it drains her of her physical energy. It, it uh, inhibits her, her brain's ability to do what it needs to do, and it really slows down her body's natural ability to heal itself. So my dad and, and, and his, you know, advisors, so to speak, me and the other siblings and other relatives and friends and family, we're kind of walking this journey of maybe it makes sense to, to remove this. And with that, you know, we could kind of go one of two ways. She could, she could continue to stay how she is. We're still doing a lot of um, natural things, uh, supplements and dietary stuff, and, and that might be enough. And maybe she even thrives because her, her body's more able to naturally heal. Or maybe she goes south, and, and maybe it's time to, to let this thing run its course. And so, so we head into Christmas season, in one hand, lots of joy and celebration, and in the other hand, big decisions with weighty consequences. And I, I've just been, I've been thinking and, and kind of laughing to myself a little bit as I've been preparing for this over the last couple of weeks, this, this message, that God would call me up here to talk with you guys about peace when so many days in my own life are so lacking of peace, uh, even with the mom thing aside, I, any of you who have ever parented a one-and-a-half-year-old know that peace is not a common adjective in your vernacular. Um, and yet, I think that's such a beautiful thing about what God has called the church to be. He has not called me to know or to have all of the right answers, but he's called me to, to walk transparently and vulnerably and authentically and just continue to point to him in the midst of my journey. And so that's kind of where I'm at um, with you guys today is, is hopefully um, 
showing my story alongside of, of the story of God's people through the Bible and um, hopefully counting on God to, to reveal something to you through that. Um, because I know that I am not the only person heading into this season with this kind of pain, this kind of tension between the good and the painful, right? I know that there are tons of stories in this room. Some of you guys know that I'm the high school pastor here, and, and through um, talking and hanging out with, with our high school students and their families and, and my volunteer leaders and my life group and the other people on staff here and just all of you who are my friends and who I get to share time with throughout the week, I know that you guys are carrying so much stuff into church here this morning, into the Christmas season. Thank you, Jesus, for air conditioning. We love it. Um, and, and we know, as a church community, we know all the things that are plastered on all the signs throughout, throughout the stores, right? Just the reason for the season and whatever it might be. And the, we know that there is truth in these things, but we know, also know that our real lives don't often reflect these, these buzzwords, these church buzzwords about the season, right? Peace and joy and hope. We know our lives often feel more like that video. Our, our lives often reflect things like this. Things like in Orange County, three out of every four marriages end in divorce. And that statistic is the same within the church as it is outside of the church. And that means that especially during this season, there's emotional and financial distress for the former couple it means kids having to figure out how to split holidays between their multiple new families. It means parents being intentionally or unintentionally pit against one another and being able to outgift one another. We know, based on statistics from last year, that 49% of all Americans have more credit card debt than they have emergency savings meaning that if they wanted to take all the cash they had saved up and get themselves out of credit card debt, they wouldn't even be able to. And yet, still, last year in the holiday season alone, between October and December, our consumer debt in the United States rose by 2.1%, $241 billion, to try to sustain this magical concept that we're sold is what Christmas is all about. For many of you guys heading into the season, you have lost a spouse or a parent or a child or a sibling or a friend or another loved one. And whether this is your first Christmas without them or it's your 50th Christmas without them, the pain of their absence in your life is real and it's heavy and it's robbing you of the ability to have peace this season. And lastly, even if somehow you magically avoid all these other factors during this season... All of us can agree that in Orange County, we live lives of little to no margin, whether it's financially or physically or emotionally or with our time. We, we allow very little margin in our lives, and that only increases exponentially during this season, right? We spend more, we commit to more, we travel more, we exert ourselves more, and what happens is this season turns into something that we're just trying to get through rather than something that we can slow down and begin to celebrate. And the worst part about all of this is, it's not new. This happens every year to us. Every year we get to this point and we're like, ah, next year it's going to be different. Next year I'm going to start saving earlier. I'm going to prepare more. I'm going to say no to more things. But next year always rolls around and we're back where we started. And yet we, we have trouble realizing that our default state is chaos, when we just put our heads down and, and barrel through life, 
Chaos is the default outcome, not peace. Peace is something that we have to pursue intentionally, and yet year in and year out, we allow chaos, our default, to define us, to define our holiday season. Right? And, and simultaneously, though, all of us can recognize this isn't how it's supposed to be. We weren't made for this kind of chaos. We weren't made for this kind of turbulence. We were made for peace, and our bodies and our souls are crying out for it, especially during this season. And so like we often do as any church community, um, we recognize that this isn't a new problem. This isn't a unique issue to us. In fact, the entire Bible from start to finish is a journey of people interacting with God and God interacting with people. And it's so helpful for us to look to that and see um, where people did things right in that and where people did things wrong and how our stories overlap. And so today, we're going to kind of be starting in the very beginning, and we're going to be working our way all the way through um, the end of of Jesus' life, pretty much. And we're just going to be making little pit stops along the way. Uh, So so we're going to be moving kind of quickly, so try to follow along if you can. Most of the verses are in your outline. They'll also be up on the screens. Um, But we're going to start, like any good story does, in the beginning. Uh, And we're going to start in Genesis 1, verses 2. 1, verse 2. And for those of you guys who are familiar with the story, this is where God is creating everything. And it says, the earth was formless and empty. And later on in the book of Isaiah, these same Hebrew words, tohu and bohu, are translated as chaos and desolation. So so our God, the God of the Bible, is is busy. He starts the story of creation by saying, I'm going to take this chaos, this desolation, this formless and empty thing, and I'm going to make something whole of it. I'm going to make something great of it. When Genesis was written, there were tons of other gods that people were worshiping at the time, and the stories of these other gods were stories of chaos. These gods were born out of chaos. They interacted with one another and with their people, their worshipers, in chaos. And yet Yahweh, the God of the Bible, He's doing something different. He's taking chaos and he's shaping it into peace. And and for those of you guys who've been around the church a while, you probably know the God word for peace is shalom, right? There's this concept of shalom, and it's it's the idea of God's peace. And, And the best picture we get of this shalom is in this story of creation. Because most of us, when we read it, We read just days one through six, God's making stuff, right? And that makes sense. That's kind of how it's written out. But when we study it a little bit deeper, we get a pattern, and we see a process of how God is ushering in shalom, peace, into existence. So I made a little graphic to to help you guys understand what this looks like. So you can see the first three days are there on the left, and God, in those first three days, is kind of creating containers, right? So day one, he's creating the heaven and the earth. Day two, he's separating within the earth the, the moisture into the atmosphere, the sky, and the moisture on, on the planet's surface. He's, so he's separating those two containers. And then on the third day, he's separating the water on the earth's surface into sea and land, And then the following three days, he respectively fills each of those containers. First, he fills the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he fills the sea and the sky with their creatures. And on day six, he creates land animals and humans. And then on the seventh day, the day that does not have a pair, God rests. There's no parade, there's no celebration, there's no party. He just rests. And that is the perfect picture of shalom. That's the perfect picture of peace. 
there's a really simple definition that I love. Uh, I think it's in your outlines, but it's, it's the idea that nothing is missing and nothing is broken. That is the essence of shalom. It's the idea that everything has its place and everything is living in peace with one another. Humans are living at peace with humans. Humans are living at peace with animals. Humans are living at peace with the planet, with God. Everyone and everything is living peaceably with one another. And yet we just have to flip on the TV or take a look at our lives and we realize that we've gone astray. We're missing something because in our lives, things are missing. Things are broken. And God's people, the story of God's people, mirrors that same narrative. For those of you guys familiar with the story, you know that humans are given the reins of the earth, and shortly thereafter, like Jeff talked about last week, their sense of entitlement takes over, and it ruins this picture of shalom. Because we are convinced that we know better than God, we know what's best for us, and we deserve what's best. Right? And so we kind of divert from, from where God is trying to lead us and and we get the consequences of those decisions. And so, so God's people are led in and out of war and slavery, in and out of exile. They begin to steal from one another and kill one another and harm one another. They begin to harm creation and animals. And, and things go missing and things become broken. And their lives are marked and marred by this sense of chaos rather than this sense of shalom from which they started. And this, this continues for thousands of years... God continues to try to intervene with them and and lead them into little pockets of peace. But time and again, they think, oh, we know better than what God has for us. And so they they wander back into whatever whatever they find themselves getting into. Until several thousand years later, um, God decides he's going to reveal his plan for ultimate restoration, ultimate peace. And he does that through a spokesperson who we um, often refer to as a prophet uh, by the name of Isaiah. You guys are probably familiar with his name. But Isaiah is this spokesperson, he's this prophet, born in this time of complete political unrest for God's people. They are living under constant threat of war, constant threat of being taken over, being made slaves, uh, and they can't stand it. The king at the time, his name is Ahaz. Ahaz was, he was an okay guy, but he couldn't care less about God. He only cared about his own reputation and success as a king. And the nice thing about God is he wants to meet us where we're at. So he uses Isaiah to approach Ahaz and say, look, I'm going to give you some war advice. I'm going to give you some strategies on how to protect yourself and your people and make you a successful king. But Ahaz, like is common to most of our stories, says, nope, I know what's best. I'm going to do this my way. And Ahaz's way leads to them being completely demolished by their neighboring countries and eventually being deported and held in exile in Babylon until they are released by the empire of Persia. But in the midst of that, in the midst of Ahaz's selfishness and entitlement, God speaks his message of peace through Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. You guys may be familiar with this around Christmas time. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So God says, look, you guys have had these kings. 
And they've brought you nothing but pain and nothing but chaos. And the ones who have tried to pursue me have maybe brought you moments of peace, but it's only lasted a little while. So I'm going to be sending to you a child who will sit on the throne of Ahaz and who will bring peace and justice and righteousness forever. And elsewhere in Isaiah's prophecy, we learn that this child will be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel translates literally into God with us. So Isaiah is promising these people, I'm God with us. God is going to move into your neighborhood and he is going to bring you peace and righteousness and justice forever. And as you can imagine, this had to have been music to these people's ears because they had been living in complete chaos and, and fear for so long. They were just crying out for peace, for shalom. They were sick of the bad kings, the corrupt governments, and a world at war. Maybe that sounds a little bit familiar. So this promise of a child of Emmanuel of God with us had to have been music to their ears. And yet... For the next 800 years, he didn't come. You can imagine they were probably, every boy that was born, like, are you, oh, dang it, you're not him. Are you, oh, man, you're not him. Every single boy, they just don't pan out. But for 800 years, generations and generations are waiting for this child to come, for God's promise to come, and it doesn't. And in fact, for the last 400 of those 800 years, God's people live in complete silence from him. Remember, these are people whose ancestors had witnessed God as a pillar of flame, as a pillar of cloud, lead them through the desert out of slavery. They have wit had witnessed miracles. They had experienced freedom from God. And now, nothing for 400 years, generations and generations, as they awaited the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, of God with us. And then, one night, 800 some odd years later, Caesar Augustus was king. Some of you guys are probably familiar with the story. And he decreed that a census be taken. And what that meant, what that census meant, is that every male had to travel back to the town in which he was born, and he had to register there. For Joseph, who was husband to Mary at the time, who were going to be the world parents of Jesus, that meant they had to travel 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And I do best with visual picture, so I wanted to give us something a little bit easier to measure that. That's from, from our front door to the Mexican border is 87 miles. Okay, so they had, they had to travel that distance, except they didn't have cars. They didn't have the five freeway. That may or may not have worked in their favor. Uh, they did not have MapQuest or GPS. They did not have air conditioning or heat or street lights or rest stops. Keep in mind, Mary is nine months pregnant at this time. Can you imagine how often they had to pull that donkey over to pee? <laughs> I, when Sarah was pregnant, we lived in Palm Desert, and we came back here. Her, her OBGYN was here. We had, to, we had to make that drive. It was about a two-hour drive, an hour and a half if I was really doing it. And we still had to stop like five, six times in that distance. So I can only imagine carrying by donkey 80 miles. Like that just, oh. That had to have been painful. But it meant for Mary and Joseph having to hope, make this journey, hoping that they were not going to get mugged or killed as was common during these long journeys. And it meant having to show up in the town of Bethlehem to their old friends and neighbors and relatives, because remember this is where Joseph was born, and having to introduce his pregnant teenage wife, pregnant with a baby that's not his, 
It's God's baby, right? And no wonder that the house was full when they asked for room. A lot of us, through children's books and the flannographs that we had in Sunday school, we, we hear the word inn, but there was, there was no commercial inn that we know of in the town at this time, so the word better translates into guest house. And so a lot of scholars believe that, that Mary and Joseph showed up to his ancestral house where he grew up, and he says, hey, we're here for the, the census, can you take us in? And they're like, sorry, we're full. And so they get sent to the back, what a lot of people believe to be a cave where the animals were kept behind the home. And it's there that Jesus is, is born. In this smelly, stinky, germ-filled, uncomfortable cave. Not the kind of place where you have, want to have a baby. And yet this is the scene in which we meet Emmanuel. This is where we meet God with us. This is where we meet the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Screaming, crying, and pooping himself in the feeding trough of a cow. And at the same time, we see this happening in a nearby field from Luke's account of Jesus' life, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And he says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news the word evangelion, that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And if you remember from the Isaiah verse that we read a while back, or if you're familiar with any of the other prophecies about Jesus' birth, you know that their expectations for this Savior, for this child, were for him to bring peace and justice and righteousness through government as king, because these were the kinds of words that, they, that were used. And with those kinds of assumptions, you would assume that this baby would be born in a palace and that his arrival would be trumpeted in by royal messengers and that there would be parades and celebrations through the street and everyone would be notified. But instead, shepherds are the chosen messengers. Shepherds would be teenage boys considered by most other people at the time to be thieves and liars because of their occupations. They were known more for their bad stench than they were for their trustworthiness to receive and deliver a message. And yet that is how God shows up in the world. That's how he proclaims his son's birth. The verse continues in 12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, people are expecting a king, expecting the royal treatment, but they get a baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. But here's my favorite part about this is because even though peace shows up and it's nothing like people expect, God's still working in his subversive little rebellious ways. Even though, even though this doesn't appear to be royal by any other um, perspective, God's demonstrating his authority by hijacking some royal language. I'm going to have up on the screen for you guys an inscription found in an old government building from Rome several years before Jesus' birth. See if you can find any similarities to the language used to announce Jesus. It says, Augustus, remember this is the emperor at the time, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order 
And whereas, having become God manifest, that concept of Emmanuel, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God, again referring to Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of good news, using that same word, evangelion, concerning him. So this is written about Caesar Augustus before Jesus is born, and yet it's the same language that God uses to announce his son's birth. So even though his birth doesn't appear royal by outside eyes, he's kind of using this language to infer, this is the king, guys, get ready. He's coming. I'm going to use the same announcement that Caesar uses for himself. So you've got to pick one king or the other, right? In other words, the king has arrived. The prince of peace whom you've expected is now here. He just doesn't look anything like you expected. Because you see, from the beginning of time, we've always thought that we know best. We know what peace looks like best. God doesn't really know. God has his ideas, but that's that's not how it works for my life. I know peace best for me, and I know how to achieve it best for me. But our way never works out. And so when peace enters into this world through Jesus, we have no way of recognizing it. It doesn't look anything like we expect. And for the next 30 some odd years, Jesus continues to prove this through his life. Jesus continues to demonstrate this counterintuitive uh, good news, this way of peace, right? And his way makes the religious elite mad And it's a surprising delight for people who'd been shut out by religion for their entire lives. He completely flipped peace on its head. Throughout history and throughout time, we've had lots of gods and prophets and religions try to give us ways to peace, paths to peace. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. If you do or don't do these things, you will have peace. And yet Jesus comes to earth the Prince of Peace, God with us, and he says, look, you will never be able to create or find peace just by checking things off a list. Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, the reference is on your outline, so I, I encourage you to go and read it. But Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace. It's not about any list of doings or not doings. It's just Jesus himself. And in his last few days on earth, before, as he was preparing to be crucified, he's having dinner, Passover dinner with his, his students, his disciples. And Jesus kind of imparts some wisdom about his peace. So during this dinner in John 14, starting in verse 26, Jesus says this. He says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus said, I'm giving you guys my peace. I'm leaving it with you. And when he says, I don't give as the world gives, he means you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. It is simply yours. You can't lose it if you misbehave. It's yours because I am with you. Later on at the conclusion of that same dinner, Jesus kind of completes this thought by saying this in John 16, 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, look, peace doesn't mean you're not going to have conflict in this world. Shalom is broken. There's going to be pain caused by you or caused by other people. But I've overcome that. That trouble is not going to be the end of you. You can still have peace in me. 
I love what the Stoic philosopher Epictetus says. He says, The emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, but he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. Jesus says, look, the world around you is going to be chaos, but in me, you can have peace. So how do we make that a reality this season? How do we, how do we, how do we acknowledge that Jesus is our peace and it's not about doing, but it's just about not doing? What does that look like in real life? The reality is we have to learn to recognize that our default state is chaos. Our default state is not peace. If we just continue to look down and try to barrel through, we are just inviting more chaos. So we have to be intentional. Over the course of the next four or five weeks, the world around you is going to be selling you the idea that you can't have peace unless you buy this or buy that, do this or do that, go to this, wait in this line, get this sale, whatever it might be. And Jesus is saying, no, I am your peace. Come rest in me. So I want to give you guys a couple of challenges over the next few weeks to make this a reality in your life. The first one is to take three minutes every day to just rest. Three minutes every day to just rest. It's this idea of of not doing anything. You still have to kind of put the to-do on your list. Rest, right? Three minutes. I don't think about your to-do list. Don't think about your agenda. I, I might get fired for this. Don't even read your Bible or pray. Just rest for three minutes. Because the idea is, if you guys have paper Bibles, take a look at it. Maybe share with a neighbor who doesn't have a paper Bible. Look, look at the area around the page and in between paragraphs. It's called margin. And our lives don't have that. And if you think about the Bible without its margins, it would still have the same amount of truth and power in it, but it would be exhausting. It might be a more effective read, use of paper, you know, you could cram more in there, it'd be more productive, but it would be exhausting. And yet that's how we live our life. We try to eliminate the margin because we're taught that we need to squeeze as much efficiency and productivity out of every minute. But God's saying, no, create margin, rest. That's why he did that on the seventh day. That is a big element of peace, of shalom. And if you're wondering how I picked three minutes, maybe that seems a little weird. Uh, In doing research for this article, I found a, a completely secular article on WebMD that says, it was talking about holiday stress, and it says three minutes a day can have a huge impact on your emotional and physical health if you just spend that time resting and refocusing and relaxing, whatever it might be, right? So three minutes a day. Hopefully some of you guys will be able to make that a priority. The second one is for all of us, but especially those who aren't going to make it a priority to have those three minutes a day, is, is be consistent coming here every Sunday this season. Do it. I know it's going to be tempting because you're going to have lots of other things to do, but let this one hour a week, if nothing else, let this one hour a week be your window of sanity, be your window of peace this season. When the world around you is telling you everything else is going to be your peace, the new iPhone, whatever it might be, the Surface 3, which is way better than the MacBook Air, whatever, this, let this be your peace. Even if you are unable to spend the three minutes, or if you are able to spend the three minutes, have an hour a week where you can come and have shelter from it. Even if it means you're showing up in your pajamas and sleeping here for an hour, do that. Be here and rest in 
God's peace. And the last challenge is just for right now. In that dinner that Jesus shared with with his students, with his uh, disciples, they they shared Passover. uh, And and, um, Jesus Jesus gave that as a reminder to his his students. He said, look, I know your guys' default state is chaos. I know peace doesn't come easily to you, and I know that you guys have short-term memory. So I'm going to give you this thing to practice regularly to remember me, to remember what I've done, to remember who I am, and to remember who you are and what you have because of me. And that's, that's what communion's all about. Communion is this, is this active reminder. It's a kinetic reminder for us to engage ourselves and remember that God is Prince of Peace. God is a God who takes chaos and wants to form peace out of it. He wants us to have peace. He created us to experience shalom. And so today, as a community, as as a way of actively fighting against the world of chaos that we're about to go back into, we're going to take a minute to experience margin and peace and to break bread together through communion. So if if communion is is something you're new to or or even just for those who who need a little reminder, um, Jesus took some bread at this dinner with his students and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this to remember me. And then he took wine. We're going to use grape juice in, in our case. And he says this. He says, this cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, Remember me. And in case you were invited and you're new to the whole church thing and those words freak you out, we don't actually believe that this is God's body or his blood. It's, it's a symbol. It's a reminder. It's, it's just a thing we do to take a second and say, I'm, I'm going to block all that other stuff out, the chaos out, and I'm just going to focus on Jesus, on his peace. So in a second, I'm going to pray then you guys will be able to get up and, and head to a station. There's some up here in the front. There's some in the back. Um, someone will, will give you communion. So you'll take some bread and you'll, you'll dip it in the juice. Uh, and just, again, take this moment to just rest. Ask God to just give you peace, give you margin in this season. And while you do that, the band is going to come up and they're going to kind of put some of our prayers to music, to song. Uh, and so as you're done having, having your moment of margin, feel free to join in, start singing recognize God for who he is and what he's done in our lives. Um, Let's be a people who aren't just grateful on Thanksgiving, but who are grateful all season long. Because we, if if anyone has a reason to celebrate this season, it's us. Amen? So let's be be that people. And uh, if you guys want... After communion, there will be some people um, around for prayer. If you, need, if you need someone to pray with you, or you can just jot a prayer down and put it in the prayer wall, uh, and, and we will pray for it throughout the week. So bow your heads with me, and uh, we'll pray, and then uh, we'll begin, begin taking communion. Jesus, thank you for not making peace about a series of things that we have to do or not do, God. Thank you. Um, Thank you that you don't revoke your peace from us if we misbehave or something. Thank you that you are our peace and you are calling us into peace, into rest, into margin this season, God. We are grateful 
but we are also forgetful. So God, as we take communion, let us remember you. Let us be reminded of the sacrifice you made and the real reason we have to celebrate this season, God. We love you so much. Amen.